0: Welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration, discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works, various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Now, this is a different kind of episode. There's no guest on this one. It's short and barely edited if I'm going to edit it at all. So apologies for my ums, ahs, maybes, you knows, all those kinds of things, which I try to dampen and lessen a little bit through the editing process. But the Passenger has just been released. I've had an opportunity to read it in a kind of Xeroxed galley. And I wanted to make some of my thoughts known. They'll be pretty congruent with a lot of what you've read otherwise. But this is just a chance to share, without a guest in this different kind of episode, some thoughts on Cory McCarthy's The Passenger, just released here in October of 2022. I'm going to try hard in the first portion of this review to not get into any details beyond those which have already been in a whole lot of newspaper reviews. I will read things that have a little bit of a spoiler to them, but all these are spoilers which are told to you on the books, copies, and in the publicity information. And with that stated in the second part of this, however, I will dig just a little deeper, and that will be a short kind of rundown of themes I've noticed. Now, as most of McCarthy's fans and probably a lot of the people who listen to this podcast know, this has been awaited for a long time. So there's a little bit of background. McCarthy published his first four books, starting with The Orchard Keeper in the mid-60s and kind of hitting the high-water mark with his last Tennessee novel, Suttree, in 1979. 1981, he wins the MacArthur Genius Grant, and during this time period, he has moved out to Texas, where he begins working on his, or has been working on probably for quite some time, his other great masterpiece, Blood Meridian, which is published in 1985. Now, up through this part of his career, McCarthy had really been kind of a secret. His books handed around at literary conferences, and the people in the know knew about him. He'd always been well-reviewed, but he just wasn't selling many copies. Esteemed by readers like Ralph Ellison, Shelby Foote, and others. He also, as his career moved on, became more and more publicity-adverse, As we see from a wonderful recent profile in the Cormac McCarthy Journal, published by Diane Luce and Zachary Turpin, McCarthy did give interviews early on in his career, but usually only when he had a personal connection to the writers. So he was no kind of recluse. He's not like J.D. Salinger hiding in a compound. He stayed social and active, but he probably also saw what happened to writers who gave in to publicity, who gave in to being on the cover of magazines and books and doing constant photo shoots. Harper Lee never published another novel until she has had a stroke and an attorney has taken over control of her publishing, and then suddenly a first draft of a book that was never published is published as a, quote, sequel. Hemingway, although he wrote a fair amount, is is completely derailed and destroyed by The fame industry. And there are good books by Robert Trogdon and Matthew Bruckley on that if you're interested in it. So, with the Border Trilogy, which the first installment of which is All the Pretty Horses 1992, he wins the National Book Award for that. And the Border Trilogy kind of puts him back on the map. All the books come back in print, which had been out of print mostly for a number of years. And then Cormacians have to wait for seven years, and then right in a row, we get No Country for Old Men. Then the next year, we get The Road. We get the film adaptation of No Country for Old Men, which is excellent and wins all these Academy Awards. Then we get the Sunset Limited, the play, which is, uh, again, very much coincides with The Road, has a lot of the same thematic interests and it's premiered at Chicago Steppenwolf Theater, which is a big deal, later filmed for HBO by Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. So he's really firing on all cylinders. And we also know that between when he's working on Blood Meridian and has moved out to Texas, he moves out earlier than we'd long thought to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he eventually gets invested in and falls in with the Santa Fe Institute, which describes its mission on its website as... Searching for Order in the Complexity of Evolving Worlds. That sounds a little bit Star Trek, but it's more interesting than that. Or not as interesting if you're a Captain Kirk guy like I am. Our research has endeavored to understand and unify underlying shared patterns in complex physical, biological, social, cultural, technological, and even possibly astrobiological worlds. Our global research network of scholars spans borders, departments, and disciplines, unifying curious minds steeped in rigorous logical, mathematical, and computational reasoning. As we reveal the unseen mechanisms, processes that shape these evolving worlds, we seek to use this understanding to promote the well-being of humankind, of life on Earth. So, under the subheading, what is complex system science? The answer is, complexity arises in any system which many agents interact and adapt to one another and their environments. Example of these complex systems include the nervous system, the internet, ecosystems, economies, cities, civilizations. As individual agents interact and adapt within these systems, evolutionary processes and often surprising emergent behaviors arise at the macro level. Complexity science attempts to find common mechanisms that lead to complexity in nominally distinct physical, biological, social, and technological systems, end quote. Now, this background on the Santa Fe Institute, which may seem to be a bit of a digression, and beside the point, actually will be important. So there we are, middle 2000s, things are going great for Cormac McCarthy. They've had made the super successful movie from No Country for Old Men. The road wins the Pulitzer. He goes on Oprah, despite his discomfort with publicity, which I think is shown very well through body language in the interviews with Oprah Winfrey. And then Silence, and now finally The Passenger, and following December 6th, it's I call it sister novel more than I do a sequel. Sister novel, Stella Maris. The legend of this book has been around for a long time. It's been discussed since before the Border Trilogy. The very first print issue of the Cormac McCarthy Journal, published way back, says we are awaiting the next new book, The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. I had a graduate school co-teacher who worked with me In this one class i taught from new orleans who told me just after all the pretty horses came out that mccarthy had been seen in new orleans and that his next book would be a new orleans novel well as we all know that was not the case and a number of years have passed between that time period of the mid 90s and the 2022 publication of the passenger and of course 16 years since the road was published so has it been worth the wait well In typical Cormacian fashion, I'll say yes and no, kind of, maybe, sort of, I don't know. And now to follow up on that very precise review, we'll go into a little more detail here. The passenger tells the story of a salvage diver, Bobby Western. He's much more than a salvage diver. When you think of McCarthy's other characters, characters like John Grady Cole from All the Pretty Horses, the nameless father of the road, Marion Silver from Orchard Keeper, even the eponymous Sutri the murderous Lester Ballard, and the unnamed kid of Blood Meridian, even that novel's mysterious judge. Even in all the variety from all those different characters, it's safe to say none have the twisty-turvy background of Bobby Western. Bobby Western is a kind of genius. His mother, we find out, worked at a low-level job at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where the earliest experiments in the Manhattan Project were carried out. And there she met Western's father, a famed physicist, who also worked on the Manhattan Project with Oppenheimer and all the rest. As described in the novel, Western fully understood that he owed his existence to Adolf Hitler. Bobby's intellect, however, is dwarfed by his younger sister's Alicia, whom I'll get to in a bit. As is slowly unveiled in the novel, Bobby drops out of graduate school in physics at Caltech. Then at one point, he becomes a race car driver in Europe until a bad wreck leaves him comatose for months. Now at the beginning of the novel, he's 37 and living in New Orleans around 1980. At the beginning of the book, Western's part of a small team of divers sent down to examine a downed airplane in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, there is one fewer corpse in the plane than there should be, although the cabin is largely intact. There seems to be no explanation on where the missing t- titular passenger has gone. As Western begins talking to people to find out about the missing passenger, he finds he himself is the object of scrutiny of a mysterious government agency. So the levels of paranoia and weirdness here, we think of things like men in black and the kind of conspiracies that led to that humorous film series. Structurally, interspersed as interstitial chapters throughout the book are sequences from the point of view. And again, we're talking third-person limited point of view. McCarthy is always sticking mostly with the third person we will have first-person kind of free and direct discourse sequences occur in very Joistian ways, as, as he's written throughout his career. But these sequences are from that limited third-person point of view of his sister, Alicia, Now, what do I mean by interstitial? Well, think of Hemingway's collection of connected stories in our time and the brief little prose poetry sections between the different short stories which are separating them out. Or think of those interstitial or intercalary, they're sometimes called chapters in The Grapes of Wrath, where the stories of the family Jode are broken up through these various stories which give us the full impact of what the Depression has done to people. Now, these chapters in Alicia show us that she's a mathematical genius and prodigy who graduated from college at the age of 14. She's also profoundly depressed, severely schizophrenic, holds long and engaged conversations with the hallucinations who visit her like the revenants in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The primary hallucination, the seeming leader of them who refers to the other specters as members of a traveling vaudeville show, is a hairless, misshapen dwarf with flippers instead of hands called a thalidomide kid. Thalidomide was a frequently prescribed tranquilizer in the first half of the 20th century, which was later ascertained caused severe birth defects. So even with him and the way his character kind of becomes more and more interesting the more we see of him, we have here this notion that the things which happened in the past, the sins of the fathers, as one review has put it, do affect the generations to come. Tellingly, the conversations with the little mind kid at times make us wonder, as surely Alicia does, whether these phantoms are hallucinations or visitations from, there's no other word for it, from beyond. Our opening scene in the book describes Alicia as having been found dead. She has walked out in the snow to die. And so our text begins, it had snowed lightly in the night. Her frozen hair was gold and crystalline and her eyes were frozen cold and hard as stones. One of her yellow boots had fallen off and stood in the snow beneath her. The shape of her coat lay dusted in the snow where she dropped it, and she wore only a white dress, and she hung among the bare gray poles of the winter trees with her head bowed and her hands turned slightly outward like those of a certain ecumenical statues whose attitude asks that their history be considered, that the deep foundation of the world be considered where it has its being in the sorrow of her creatures. Alicia's absence and... The tragedy of her suicide haunt the book because Bobby has loved and continues to love Alicia more than anything else in his life. And as we know from her chapters in this book and from the sister novel Stella Morris, Alicia felt the same way about Bobby. Their love is not only sibling love, but and this is a word I had to look up on the internet, consanguineous amorous, which is to say, a true romantic sexual love between siblings. It is a love of high and flourishing romance in an incestuous and indeed openly Faulknerian way. It is no less creepy for all that is never consummated. His grief for his sister haunts him throughout this novel. Her absence haunts him just like the absurd hallucinations haunt her waking life. In the early going of the novel, the tension does ratchet up as one expects in a suspense novel. Bobby pretty quickly understands he is swimming in murky waters and that he is not sure what dangers lurk just out of sight. More and more challenges mount, and the novel has for a time a strange timbre as the spawned of an illicit trice between John Grisham and Franz Kafka. Ultimately, however, as a novel of plot, the book is a failure. The suspense plot weaves in and out, and without going into spoilers, I will warn you not to expect the sort of answers and resolutions you are guaranteed in books by Lee Child, Harlan Coben, or the aforementioned John Grisham. Much of the novel is made up of Western's meandering conversations of friends from New Orleans and Knoxville. All these conversations can be interesting at times as they delve into metaphysics and just plain physics sans the meta. They often seem to have little significance and are irrelevant often to the story. It's peculiar how often Western encounters his Tennessee friends in New Orleans. The structure in its reiteration of a conversation followed by a bit of movement by Bobby then another conversation with another friend and then a bit of movement, followed by another conversation, is obliquely reminiscent of the crossing, where as we remember, Billy Parm often has these long discussions, or really he's often the audience listening to someone else hold forth on metaphysical philosophical conundrums and, you know, ways of seeing the universe and considerations of life and the universe and everything, to channel a little bit of Douglas Adams for a second. In the passenger, however, these conversations seem more loosely connected, and as stated before, the relevance is often difficult to ascertain. For example, at one point a private detective is introduced who is of little help in dealing with Western's problems with these strange, you know, dark shaded, dark suited government figures, but who spends a long time in the book explaining conspiracy theories regarding the Kennedy assassination. Bobby's various conversations with these friends of his vary between, and and also with people he meets, they vary between interesting and ones that feel as if they're just name-dropping the names of famous mathematicians and physicists, as if you were intruding on a party where everyone but you had a PhD from a major institution in physics except you. And I suspect this is the way people feel when English professors get to discussing nuances of critical theory at a party and start talking about Derrida this, Lacan that, Foucault said this, Roland Barthes said this, Kristeva believes this. And we see it in a lot of ways. Now, virtually every published review will give you an example of one of these discussions. And here's one I'll throw out. He's talking with one of his friends about matrix theory in the kind of a early days of quantum string theory. And question gets asked, and Bobby says, Who knows? Feynman once said, that we were now discovering the fundamental laws of nature and that they will never come again. Feynman is a bright guy, but I think it's a somewhat questionable thing to say. Should science by some miracle forge on into the future, it will uncover not only laws of na- new laws of nature, but new natures to have laws about. Last lines of Dirac's book are, it seems that some essential new physical ideas here are needed. Well, there always will be. What happened to Kaluza Klein? It's still around. It appeared in modern unification theories. The question, of course, is whether these in turn have any value. The original theory is a pretty elegant edifice. Einstein was taken with it. He wrote a rather neat paper on this subject. It had drawings and everything, but he came to see most of the problems eventually dropped the whole thing. I knew my father had dug up Kalutza's 1921 paper. There was a five-dimensional field theory that went with it, and it was quite a piece of work. It included general relativistic theory of gravitation. This is what got Klein interested when the Kaluza Klein version came out and incorporated quantum mechanics. De Broglie was interested, and these were interesting times in physics. Well, maybe in physics, but not so much at the cocktail party or dinner party where that comes out, and not always in the novel. Although, again, some of these conversations can be very interesting. And as you would expect from reading that section, just as the book is haunted by the memory of his dead sister, it too is shadowed by the legacy of his dead father. The mother is not so significant in this novel, which is hardly a surprise given the short shrift women and mother characters have gotten in many McCarthy novels, but she does play a much more significant role in Alicia's reminiscences in Stella Morris. But again, as I said, the memory of his father and more what his father and all his colleagues represent when they created the atomic bomb and basically devised a way for human life to be destroyed, that notion haunts the book throughout. And late in the novel, thinking about his father, we hear this sequence coming through Western's consciousness. His father... Who had created out of the absolute dust of the earth an evil sun by whose light men saw, like some hideous adumbration of their own ends through cloth and flesh, the bones in one another's bodies. He looked for his father's grave in the ratlands of northern Mexico, but he never found it. Talking in his bad Spanish with officials in soiled shirts who watched him wordlessly and did not even pretend to think, think him sane. On the streets of Knoxville, he met someone from his childhood who asked him with no apparent malice if he thought that his father was in hell. No, he said, not anymore. Well, there's your McCarthy worldview summed up in a sentence or two, isn't it? Now, to briefly look ahead to the second novel, which will be forthcoming in the first week of December, you can read The Passenger Without Reading Stella Maris, but it would be an experience which is less rich. Initially, I believe, from things I've heard and from what I think, but of course I have no proof, not having Cormac in my pocket to ask questions of him, I believe they're probably initially supposed to be part of the same book. I can see why they're separated out from each other, however... Stella Maris is composed entirely of a dialogue between Alicia and her psychiatrist at a psychiatric care facility called Stella Maris, the Star of the Sea, an ancient title ascribed to the Virgin Mary. However, you cannot make sufficient sense of Stella Maris if you have not read The Passenger. So what is the aesthetic judgment? Again, in this first half of my talk, I've tried to forego any spoilers. I've tried to keep it vague. I've tried to stay within the boundaries we see in all the newspaper and online reviews we've seen. Where are we at artistically? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, I'll tell you, I've heard readers whose opinions I trust discuss the books and particularly the passenger with great enthusiasm. I've also heard readers whose opinions I trust discuss the passenger with great disappointment. These are all people I've had on my podcast. They're all people I think highly of. So we see there great variance in how people read it. Is The Passenger McCarthy's best novel? No, and not by a long shot. If I'm completely honest, i would admit I place this among McCarthy's lesser novels. Yet I find I am fascinated with both these books, and I'm eager to reread them. I can't think of any significant literary writers who end their careers without a single misfire. Hemingway's Across the River and Into the Trees is a travesty compared to his first two novels and his first collections of stories. Faulkner's A Fable almost seems a work of self-parody. Yet even at his worst, McCarthy is interesting. His crafting of prose poetry still leaves passages in the book to take your breath away. And I'll give you an example. Because it is Cormac McCarthy, I can emulate the Guardian's book reviewer and read you the last paragraph without really spoiling a single thing you don't know from the beginning of the book. Now the context is he's reading in a hovel the straw roof hissing in the bell-shaped dark above him, and his shadow on the rough troweled wall, like the scholars of old in their cold stone rooms toiling at their scrolls, the lenses of their lamps that were made of tortoiseshell boiled and scraped and formed in a press, and the fortuitous geographies they cast upon the tower walls of lands unknown alike to men or to their gods. Finally he leaned and cupped his hand to the glass chimney and blew out the lamp and lay back in the dark. He knew that on the day of his death he would see her face, and he could hope to carry that beauty into the darkness with him, the last pagan on earth, singing softly upon his palate in an unknown tongue. Now, moving into the second part of the review, as a warning, I won't be quite as cautious of spoilers, although I don't intend to go in into any plot discrepancies or issues, other than to say that many people are saying this is one of McCarthy's most autobiographical works. Now, again, go ahead and turn the podcast on if you want to be completely clear of spoilers. If you want to continue, then we're going to continue right here, right now. So how is autobiographical? Well, the first thing is, I don't know if I'm well acquainted enough with all of his biography to say, but we do see the character Bobby Western make his way to Arizona, and then at some point he is in New Orleans at various points, as just as McCarthy lived in New Orleans at different times and lived in Tucson for a while. He eventually goes to Ibiza in Spain to live. And again, all of this reflects the life McCarthy lived, and so we start becoming curious whether this biographical connectedness, which he avoids in every book except for probably Sutri, really means anything. Now, as I've stated before on the podcast, works of art can be viewed by different lenses. Something not may not quite work in terms of its pure aesthetic value, but can be fascinating in other ways. This is why in teaching literature, I try to get my students to distinguish between value judgments from an artistic standpoint, which we do when evaluating the quality of a work, or from a vantage point of moral values, which is when we decide a story or a character, an author, is not up to whatever standard we set for them, and which is virtually meaningless from any kind of useful analysis standpoint or then from an intellectual uh, level. Theory can help out here, and a post-structuralist approach can often help. For example, Willie Dixon's 1905 novel The Klansman* is a complete waste of effort artistically. It's not even just horrifically racist. It's also horribly written and just kind of stupid. It tells the story of abuses during post-civil reconstruction, which leads the former slaves feeling empowered to rape and murder, and that's how the Ku Klux Klan has to rise up and defend the culture. As a work of pop culture is not unfair to call it trash, but it does get adapted into the first important motion picture, Birth of a Nation, by D.W. Griffith in 1915, and provides interesting insights into what kinds of books would stir the popular imagination United States of 1905. So to be fair, plenty of people hated it, 05 and 06, but plenty of people bought it as well. From a post structuralist standpoint, we might think of new historicism and other approaches, We evaluate the culture using this textual artifact. We evaluate the aporia, which is, to say, the cultural blind spot people have as they value it one way or the other. So although the book has no artistic value to our modern 2022 audience, it still has interest. It's still worthy of analysis. Now, though these novels I'm talking about today, The Passenger and its soon-to-be-released Stella Morris, may not artistically measure up to the heights of Sutri, Blood Meridian, or The Road, they're still going to provide a lot of room for scholars, critics, and engaged readers to meander around inside of. The perfect reader for these two novels has a master's in English, a master's in philosophy, and a PhD in either mathematics or quantum physics. So a few other notes of interest. The writer John Jeremiah Sullivan and his a fairly even-tempered, even-handed review published in New York Times Book Review just recently does a pretty good job hitting both highs and lows. He does have this one interesting line where he connects Bobby Western's name with the idea of the decline and fall of Western civilization. Other viewers are thinking of the Western novel with that name. My reaction is point to the, both is, hmm, I have to think about it. Also, I think you could argue like The Judge and Blood and Meridian and the strange allegorical style of Outer Dark, these novels may be seen as a kind of magical realism. They're not in- inhabiting the same space when we use that term as we might mean with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and not even the same space we might think of with Borges and certainly not even Toni Morrison. But there's something going on here. I don't think everything can be accounted for in these books through Alicia's hallucinations and Bobby Weston's dreams. Another thing I think McCarthy is using the notions of quantum physics as a kind of metaphor with the metaphysics at play here. I don't know that I understand the physics well enough to pick up on it, though, and I'm waiting for my aforementioned ideal reader to sort it all out for me. Additionally, I think there's a lot of metafiction mixed in with the metaphysics and the non-metaphysics and the math. Now, by way of example, when... Ernest Hemingway published the Old Man to Sea in 1952, coming out initially Life magazine and almost immediately afterward the Scribner standalone edition of the novel, or really novella for being strict. A lot was published pretty early on on the religious symbolism in the story, which is we you know we have the stigmata. He carries a mast on his back like Christ carrying the cross. He sacrifices for others. There's a whole lot going on. At the same time, there's clear artistic allegory, metafictional element. He goes out all by himself after the big fish, like the artist who has to go out on his own to reel in the great work of art, the painting or the sculpture or the novel. And he finally does bring it in. He finally does land it. But then the critics, I mean the sharks, tear it all the pieces. And so when people ask him about this, Hemingway denied that it meant anything. Goes, it It's just an old man and a fish, he said. And various times he kind of admitted to a little bit of it. He said, I just want to start with the old man and a fish. And, you know, no, none of the symbols are planned. And my reaction to that is like the reaction of Miracle, Max's wife, Valerie, in the film of The Princess Bride when she screams, liar, liar. Because there's clearly a lot going on from a metafictional allegory standpoint in The Old Man to See. Now, in The Passenger and in Stella Maris, mostly The Passenger, I've picked up significant references to Faulkner, to Hemingway, a little dash of Stephen Crane, and I suspect a little bit of Don DeLillo. There seem to be overt nods to The Road as well. And one, as always, is curious as to what is written in this book and when. How much of the text predate the books written in the first decade of the 2000s? No country, for old men, sunset, limited, the road. How much sense, then? The question, as always, is whether these references pass the so what test. For example, when Eliot writes in the Love Song of J Alfred Prufrock, "There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate." He's referencing Hesiod. We can't be sure it passes the So What test. It may just be showing off. With Eliot, there's a thin line there sometimes. It may just be interesting without being relevant. On the other hand, the later reference to Hamlet in that same poem, No, I'm not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord. One that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise a prince, no doubt an easy tool. Resonates perfectly with the themes of powerlessness, indecisiveness uh, that radiate throughout the poem in this kind of evocation of a an estatized, weak, modern man of the post-World War I generation, and really the, of the World War I generation since the first drafts of the poem, first versions are written during World War One. The question will be whether these intertextual allusions to other texts by other writers and to McCarthy's other books are merely interesting to the informed reader, or if they're also relevant to our understanding of it. So finally, I'll follow this short podcast, one about Stella Morris, in a few weeks, Thank you for listening and I hope you've enjoyed this brief break with my form. As always, thanks to Thomas Fry who composed, performed, and produced, the theme music and interludes to Reading McCarthy. The views of the hosts and my guests when I have them do not necessarily reflect the views of the home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society. Contact me. Please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash reading mccarthy i should announce in all likelihood i'm going to begin accepting minor not too cumbersome sponsorships in the near future just to cover the minor expenses of the show but for now thanks for listening and can't believe i went all this way and never referenced that song by iggy pop